Several years ago, I met Harriet Burns in her town of Trenton, Illinois. As I sat in her living room, she began to tell me her story. She was already into her 80s, and she had a long story to tell. And it was a fascinating story. It was a story of how she, a farmer's daughter, one of four children, three girls, one boy, they had made their living on the farm. Of all the children, she was the only one who ventured away from Trenton, Illinois. In her movement across the river to Missouri, she settled in Kennett, Missouri, where she was married, had a happy marriage. Meanwhile, back on the farm as her mother aged, her mother became concerned about the future of the other three children once she passed away. She knew her days were numbered. And she sent word to her daughter Harriet in Missouri to please come home for a conference with her and her siblings. When she arrived, she was not quite prepared for what she heard. Her mother said to her, Harriet, you have been blessed with a secure job. You're married. And what I have decided to do is to write you out of my will. Because your sister's are unmarried, your brother's unmarried. They spent their entire lives here working the farm. And I have come to this conclusion. Harriet did not have a negative response, amazingly. She said, Mother, this land is yours, and you certainly have the right to do with it whatever you choose. A few months later, her mother did indeed pass away. And years passed, not many, before she received communication from her two sisters. They were both on the phone to her at the same time. And they told her that they both had been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And they asked, would you be willing to come and take care of us, since we have no other family to do that, during our last days? And she said, without hesitation, yes, I will come. She gave notice to her employer. She sold her house. She was widowed by that time herself. She gathered her belongings, made her way back to Trenton, to the farm where she had been raised. The sisters died within months, very close to each other in their deaths, leaving the brother, himself a bachelor, never married, no heirs, and lo and behold, he contracted cancer too. And when he knew that his disease was terminal, he said to her, Sister, I think we need to go to that attorney who wrote wrote up the document that you signed saying you would not contest the will when Mother died. You've been so kind to our sisters and now to me, taking care of us during our time of dire illness. Let's go and see if we can't undo that. They went to the same lawyer who had drawn up the document to begin with. He said, no problem, it'll be very simple. In a matter of moments, before the probate judge in that county in Illinois, everything was undone. Soon thereafter, her brother passed away, and she became the heir to that entire estate. She, when I visited with her, was known as one of the wealthier people in the county in which 
Trenton, Illinois was the county seat in Illinois. That's an amazing story. But you know, not all siblings are as kind to their sisters and brothers in their attitude about the estate. On Christmas Eve, if you were here, you remember that we talked about how Jesus shows us who God is. And we saw it in the parable of what we know as the prodigal son. It might be better described as the parable of the prodigal father, actually, because he was profuse in his expression of love to this son who ran away, not without permission of his father, but nevertheless he ran away with his share of the inheritance. According to Deuteronomy 21.17, the law of Moses says that in the case of a man who leaves an estate, he's to leave two-thirds to the elder son, and if the next son in line is able to receive because he has been a good son, we'll get the other third. Well, it so happened that the story of the prodigal son tells the story of two sons. And we looked at the first son's story in some detail. We're going to review it a little bit in a moment on Christmas Eve morning. But there is a son, the elder son, in this story who is largely overlooked. When you think of the parable of the prodigal son, do you think about the elder brother? I rarely do. I rarely do. Today, we're going to take a look at the elder brother. And let's pick up this story by beginning reading the first two verses of Luke 15. And then we're going to go to the 25th verse and read down to the end of the 31st verse. It's important that we understand the audience that first heard this message from Jesus. It was a mixed audience. It was made up of two distinct groups of people as far as the way they viewed themselves and the way they were viewed by others in that day in Israel. Look at verse 1 of Luke 15. Now, all the tax gatherers... And the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. This is an all-inclusive statement. Every tax gatherer in the region and all the sinners were flocking to Jesus. Perhaps you've noticed when you've read the Gospels that these folks were the folks that Jesus most enjoyed being with. Have you noticed that? He was indiscriminate in his choice of company, but I think he really delighted in being with those tax gatherers who were outcasts because of their association with Rome and Gentiles, but also these so-called sinners who were made up of prostitutes and beggars and people who were misfits and outcasts. Well, that's part of the group. It was the larger part of the group. It always is in the audience which comes to hear what Jesus has to say. Well, look at verse 2. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. These are the religious elite. This man receives sinners and eats with them. You may remember an encounter that Jesus had with some of the other Pharisees and scribes on a different occasion. And He said very bluntly to them, 
The man who is well does not need a doctor. He was talking about them. In their own estimation, these Pharisees and scribes thought that they were a cut above all these sinners and all these tax gatherers. Little did they know, though. Jesus saw into their hearts. And man looks at the outward appearance, the Bible says, but God looks at the heart. And the reality is about everyone in this room, in this audience, whether you will find yourself identifying with the prodigal son or with the elder brother, all of us and everyone in between the extremes represented by these two individuals, we all are sinners. In our hearts, we all harbor sin. We are men and women who stand in the need of the mercy and grace of God without exception. But the Pharisees and scribes did not see themselves that way. Do you remember another parable Jesus teaches? It's recorded in the book of Luke about a man who was a Pharisee and he goes into the temple and the scripture says he prayed and literally says, it doesn't reflect this in the regular translations for some reason. I don't know why the reason is, but literally the language says he prayed to himself. He stood up where he could be seen. He projected so that he could be heard. And he said, as he looked around at all the people there, he said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a sinner like the rest of these people here. (laughs) Meanwhile, in the shadows, there was a tax collector. And the scripture says he couldn't even raise his head in the presence of God. And he beat his breast and he said, Lord, be merciful to me. And the translations here again do not capture the meaning. Most of the translations say, a sinner. But literally, this is what he says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. He wasn't concerned about anyone else in that room. He was only concerned about himself. Because he knew the depth of his own need for forgiveness. This is the audience to which Jesus teaches this parable. Prodigals as well as elder brothers. Now let's look at verse 25. It's where we left off on Christmas Eve Sunday. Now his older brother was in the field. Now to whom does the his refer? Well, we know it refers to the prodigal son. Let's quickly rehearse the story. As Jesus tells the parable, he tells of this younger son who rather brashly comes to his father and actually demands his share of the estate. Remember, that would have been one-third of his father's estate. And surprisingly and remarkably, the father agrees to his demand. He gives him his third of the estate. And the Bible says after a few days, after he had gotten his assets, liquidated them, translated them into a form of money that he could spend in the far country where he was going because he could not wait to get out from under the thumb of his father. That's the way he felt. He was being pressed down and restricted by his father. So he goes to the far country, representative of any time we try to run away with God. Look, God is omnipresent. There's nowhere in the universe you or I could go that God is not there. And thank God for that. There's such a misunderstanding, we're going to look at that in a moment, on the part of the elder brother about 
the Lord. There was misunderstanding on the part of the younger brother, too. So he gets his goods together, and the Scripture says he goes into this far country, and he squanders his estate with loose living. The word translated squandered is a word which was used to describe an army in defeat which had been scattered all over the battlefield. You've seen depictions of this in movies like Braveheart and other movies similar to that. All these bodies strewn all over in disarray and death. And that's the word which is used, the squandering of his life in loose living. The word translated loose living is one word. It's a word which literally means wasted. Have any of you ever been wasted before? No testimonies needed here. <laughs> right? Well, this boy took all of his share of the estate and he wasted it. It didn't take him long. He had a lot of friends as long as he had money. As long as he was pitching a party, he had a bunch of buddies. But as soon as he ran out of money... He couldn't find anybody who wished to be his friend. Remember, he's in a far country. And symbolically, this was, of course, told to a Jewish audience primarily. And the far country would have represented an area outside of Israel. It would be Gentiles. And he is so desperate because he's out of money. But in addition to that, coinciding with this great Loss of resources, a famine strikes that region. The result of which is that everyone is starving. So he attaches himself, that's the word that's used, it means he attached himself to a pig farmer. And this pig farmer gave him a job feeding the swine, as the New American Standard translates it. And we know that Jewish people were forbidden to have anything to do with pigs or swine. Anything to do. In fact, there was a rabbinical saying contemporary to Jesus which went like this, Cursed is the man who finds himself having to feed swine. Here he was. He knew that parable. He knew that proverb. Cursed is the man. And he had low self-esteem, undoubtedly, that he would stoop to the point of attaching himself to a pig farmer in the first place and then do the work of feeding these pigs. And he ends up eating the pods which had contained carob beans that had been the food for the pigs. And by this time, probably the famine had become so severe that maybe even the owner of the pigs ate the peas in the pod And the pigs were left to eat just the pods. He was around there on his all fours, scrambling around with the rest of those animals eating that. That's a sad picture, isn't it? And then the text says that he came to his senses. This was a word which was used, or a phrase which was used among doctors of the day to describe someone who had been in a coma and all of a sudden comes out of the coma. He was in a spiritual stupor. He was in a spiritual coma. His mind had been made fuzzy and his whole perspective was skewed because of his refusal to be what God wanted him to be. God's son. In the parable, we know that the father is representative of God the father. We know that. 
And as this young man came to his senses, he begins to think and he begins to speak to himself. Do you ever talk to yourself? Well, you need to if you don't. It's a good thing. And so he begins to talk to himself. And he says, I'm going to go to Daddy and I'm going to tell him that I have sinned against heaven and against him. And I'm going to say, Father, I don't want to come back as your son. I know I don't deserve that. I don't even know if I deserve what I'm going to ask you to allow me to come back as. But I want to come back as one of your hired servants. Because he knew the hired hands were treated much better than this pig farmer was treating him. And so he thought about that. And then the text says he gets up from where he is and he begins to make his way back home. Now remember, this man is malnourished. We don't know how long it took him to get back. We know he's in the far country. So it would take a while to get back. And he begins to make his way back ever so slowly without resources to buy food. He has to beg on the way. He's been reduced to begging for whatever he has. Willing to work, but willing to beg too. His self-esteem has been smashed because of the choices which he has made and the distancing that has occurred between him and his father. This is a picture of prodigals where they want to live it up. And they do. But they discover the result of living it up is being brought down to a place of indignity and a place of emptiness. And a realization, hopefully like this young man, that perhaps I can return to God, my Father. And perhaps He will receive me. And perhaps He'll at least let me be His servant. I know I don't deserve to be his child, but maybe I could be in some way his servant. So on his way back, he, I would imagine, keeps rehearsing his speech. And all of a sudden, his father, the scripture says, his father saw him from a distance. What does that mean? Did his father have binoculars? No, there were no such things as far as I know in first century Israel. But this would suggest that his father was wealthy enough to have an estate big enough and valuable enough that a wall would have been built around it and there would be a walkway around that wall. And when the father had spare moments for probably months, every day undoubtedly he would go and he'd walk around that walkway and he would peer into the distance. He would shade his eyes when the sun was going down and look down the road that led from his house into the horizon And he would see people coming and he would hope that one of those people one day would be his boy coming home. And then one day he sees a figure. And the man is moving slowly, but there is a clear resemblance between the way in which this man walks and the way his son walks. Let me ask you, parent. Do you know how your child walks. I'm talking about physically. Could you pick your child out in a group if the child was away just by looking at the way in which that child walked or runs? Could you? Probably. You could. And as he looked, he said, could it be? 
And the Bible tells He came down off of that high place and the Scripture says He ran toward this boy. The word translated run or ran is the word which was used in reference to the equivalent of the Olympic Games today in that region. It was not a trot. It was a race. This man raced would be a better word to his son. And when he saw his son, what does the text say he does? The text says he embraces the son. The son says to him what he had planned to say to him, but he left one part out. He does not include the part that he had anticipated saying to the son that make me one of your hired men. You know why? He didn't have time. What he did say, the father heard and heard it with great joy. He said, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What was that boy doing? He was repenting of his attitude, wasn't he, in his behavior. He was saying, Daddy, I'm so sorry. Could you forgive me, Daddy? And we know the dad was so excited to have him back. Why? Because he embraces him, he kisses him, Then he turns to one of his servants and he says, go and get the robe, the robe. There was a robe that was reserved in this great house of this wealthy, important man. And it was reserved for such a time as this. In addition, he said, bring the ring. The ring in question was the signet ring. Whenever this well-to-do man was writing a letter of an official nature to someone else, he would roll the scroll up, then he would take his signet ring and he would impress it upon the soft wax. And what that did, it accomplished two purposes. One, it authenticated the letter, that it was indeed a letter from this man. But it also gave authority to the one who took it. And what he's doing when he's giving the ring to this son of his, he's saying, you are for real my boy. You are my Son. In addition to that, he says, you have the authority that comes with being my son. So, what does he do? He says, get the robe, get the ring, and get him some sandals. Why? Because he was barefooted. Slaves didn't have shoes. It's one of the ways you could determine if a person in the Greco-Roman world was a slave. They didn't have shoes. Slaves didn't wear anything on their feet. So he didn't want him to be in that position any longer. And then he tells his servants, get the fattened calf. Students of the historical setting in which the New Testament is set, tell us that in these villages that Jesus frequented and taught His message, that meat was not a staple of the diets of people. People might have meat once or twice a week, and rarely, if ever, did they have beef. But here this wealthy man had a fattened calf in reserve for just such a time as this as well. And then he says, we're going to have a party We're going to take this fattened calf. We're going to barbecue that calf. We're going to have a great time together. And the Scripture says that 
they did do that. And let's look at verse 25. Back to our text. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. That would signify party, wouldn't it? And the word music signifies also that probably there was an orchestra. We don't know how many instruments would have been involved, but there was an orchestra and there was dancing and probably not ballroom dancing, all right? This is probably kind of lively dancing. They were excited about the return of the sun. And verse 26 says about the elder brother, he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. We know from the verb that's used here, this translated began inquiring. He didn't just ask once. He asked probably have to be at least twice. We know that by the tense of the verb, maybe many times. What's going on in there? And he gets the same answer. Look at what the servant said to him in verse 27. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28 says, but he became angry and was not willing to go in. Now here, let's pause here just a moment. There is a very important statement about the elder brother. He was not willing to go in to the party. Here's the question that we're going to ask and see the answer to in the rest of this passage of Scripture. Why would not he go in? And there are two answers. Let me give you them, and we're going to look at them each in some detail. First of all, he would not go in because he was mad at his father. Secondly, and more importantly, he misunderstood his father. He really didn't know his father. Let's start with the first suggestion. He was mad at his father. We know that. Verse 28, he became angry. Why was he angry? Well, here's why he was angry. He was angry because he was eaten up with himself. He was selfish. He was self-centered. Notice the indication of that in verse 29. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be married with my friends. You see the emphasis on the personal pronoun and its associated pronouns, I, me, my. All sin, whether it's the type of the prodigal or the type of the elder brother, is the same. It's centered in self. It's not centered in the Lord. This is the essence of sin. That we want to live life the way we see it without regard for God's perspective. On the matter. This man had slaved, doing his duty, but with no loving spirit. One wonders what was going on in the period of time when his younger brother was away, maybe for months, maybe even years, when he was faithfully out in the farmland field, busting sod. Did he seethe with anger then? Probably. Because this eruption of anger was the result of a build-up of anger. And he was angry toward his father and brother. Seeing their faces in each clod, he broke. He kept track, probably, of all the days and the hours of the day. All the crops that he had 
harvested with the other servants and what he'd given up to serve the father compared to this errant younger brother who had run away with a third of his father's estate. Now, here's a question for you and me. Remember, we are likely in one of these two camps or we have a tendency to be in one of these two camps. Listen to this question. Do you keep up with every penny you give to the Father? Do you calculate all the time you spend in serving God? Do you resent all the time you give to the service of the Lord? Well, you're akin to the elder brother, if that's true. He had not only slaved faithfully on the farm, but he had obeyed the Lord. While his brother wandered and squandered, he was being a good boy. Do you know God's not interested in your goodness? You may find that as a surprise. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Though this elder brother's clothes were not stained with the filth of the pig pen, they were dirty with the soil of toiling for position with the father. Jockeying for position, sibling rivalry. This man thought his position with the father depended upon his service and obedience. He wanted to be loved for what he did for being perfect. This made him proud. This is a problem we have. If your goodness keeps you from God's grace, you might as well have gone into the far country. Just like a prodigal. Sin is sin. Because it's rebellion against God. Whether it's retained and self-contained in a sense in the heart, never really gets out. It got out here, didn't it? I mean, he just, like a volcano erupting, spilled all that stuff on his dad that day. He was mad as a wet hen, wasn't he? The Bible says that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags to God. Every good thing I do to try to make myself right with God stinks in the presence of God. Mark Twain, who was not a believer but had acquaintance with the elder brothers in his day. He'd observed them and probably he used them as an excuse for being a prodigal. Perhaps he did. But this is what he said about this man. He said, he was a good man in the worst sense of the word. Good men crucified Christ. Did you know that? Good men by the world's standards. They crucified Jesus. Now, I'm not advocating you go out and go wild and crazy and be a prodigal. I'm not. I mean, that was a terrible life. It's not either or. There's a better way. We're going to get to that a bit later. Now, if you're a firstborn, I'm a firstborn. You must realize that you are susceptible to being an elder brother or an elder sister. Because without really even knowing what they're doing, 
the first child gets all the pressure. All the pressure. And the first child has adults for his role model or her role model. And consequently, they want to be perfect. They want to do everything just right. And you are more susceptible if you're first born. And if you're an only child, that's by God's sovereignty if you're an only child. But it's doubly difficult for you. And we have some only children here. So beware of that, please. Well, his anger was rooted in his selfishness. And it surfaced in his jealousy. Years of secret resentment came pouring out. He was jealous. In the book of Genesis, the 47th chapter, there's a conversation that Pharaoh has with Jacob, the father of Joseph. And when he met him, he asked him the question, How old are you, Jacob? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Few years, 130 And evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers, that would be Abraham and Isaac, in the days of their pilgrimage. We've just been reading in the Old Testament, and Abraham lived to be 175, a ripe old age. That is a long time, isn't it, to live? And what was the problem with Jacob? He said, few and evil. It doesn't mean his deeds were evil. He had a lot of evil stuff going on. You've read his story perhaps too in Genesis but in the sense that they were mean to him. Life had not treated him well, is what he was saying. But here's his problem. Why did he feel like 130 years was bad? It's because he compared himself to others, namely his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, who had lived longer than he had lived. Here's the problem. The Bible says we are fools. In the book of 2 Corinthians 10-12, we are fools if we compare ourselves to one another. Do you ever compare yourself to others? It breeds jealousy, doesn't it? Does it gripe you that you never get or get less credit than others in the church get? Less applause than others in the church get? Does it bug you? Maybe it's because you've never gone in to the party. Maybe you're standing outside on the porch, arms folded, stubbornly pouting because God's been kinder to another than He's been to you. Well, think again. You don't deserve mercy, nor do I. If we insist upon justice, do you know what we deserve? Death. Because we are rebellious against the Lord. And it's by His mercy and grace that He has welcomed us into the family. This man was mad and consequently did not go in. And he also misunderstood the father. The text says, if you go back to verse 28, when the father learned that his older son had come home from working, it says the father came out and began entreating him. That means begging him. And he did it repeatedly. We can tell that again by the language which Jesus uses. He begged him and he begged him and he begged him. And this would have been an indignity for him. Because the elder brother, whenever there was a social occasion in the house, the elder brother's role was to be the greeter. The greater 
expression of hospitality and service to the guest. We have no idea, not being Middle Easterners, what that's like. The responsibility was there. And instead of the son coming in and doing what would be honoring to his father, he's standing out on the porch of merit instead of understanding the mercy of God for him. When the father came running to the prodigal, that's a dramatic picture of the father's coming out of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ to save us. But when he comes out of the house, that's another picture. He's coming for reconciliation as well in that picture. You know there's a third son in this parable. There's the prodigal, of course. There's the elder brother, yes. But implied, Jesus is in this story. There was a tradition that was held very carefully among Jews of the day. If a child or another family member had run away or been away for a long period of time and the child arrives back home, the fattened calf if there was one, but there would be some sort of sacrifice where the case in point, this fattened calf was taken. It was sacrificed. Blood was let as a threshold sacrifice is what it was called. Just in case there had been sin that had been committed by the returnee, there was that available. What a beautiful picture of God's provision for our sin when He died through Christ on the cross to purchase a place for us in heaven, which He offers as a free gift. Let's consider some of the things the Bible says about us who know Jesus Christ. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The Bible says what He's done with our sins, He's tossed them into the depths of the sea, Never to be dragged up again. The Scriptures tell us as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. The Bible says, God speaks, He says, Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the greatest story ever known to mankind. This is what we need without exception. This is what we long for even when we don't know what we need. He's the one who came to fill your life with Himself and free you from your own selfishness and your own sinfulness and to give you eternal life. Life in this life as well as the life to come. The way the Father speaks to this Son, this elder Son, is telling also. Look again at the text. The Scripture says in verse 31, He said to him, My child. He doesn't say my son. He says my child. There's a reason for this. The word for child that is used by Jesus is an endearing term. If this had been spoken in Spanish, the words would be mi niño. And some of you are maybe even almost as old as I am and your mother's still living or your father's still living 
And they still call you Nino. Is that correct? And I can look at you and tell you're no Nino anymore, right? (laughs) But it was the father's expression to this elder son. You have always been with me. Now, here's the big issue. He'd always been with the father. But he had not taken advantage of the nearness of the father. He could have fellowship with the father all the time. He wanted not the father. He wanted what the Father could do for Him. That's what He wanted. And if I am properly interpreting this story, the younger brother had tried that. And how did it work out for him? He didn't want the Father. He just wanted his share of the estate. I wish you were dead, Daddy. And he went into the far country. So, here we see this man... Wanting what the Father could give him rather than the Father Himself. The younger man came back no longer wishing to be honored, but to be a day laborer. He no longer asked the Father for anything. That's what is the mark of maturity, by the way. The humility to come before God and say, I'm I'm sorry, Father. I have sinned against you and against heaven. Father, forgive me. I want to repent of my selfish life. Whether you're a prodigal or an elder brother or someone in between, that should be our approach to our God as we humble ourselves before Him. Reconciliation between God and man results in celebration. God's kingdom is festive. In Romans chapter 14, the Bible talks about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We don't even have words that can capture what joy means. It's inexpressible is what the Bible says. There's this festivity that occurs in heaven. Jesus talks about it earlier in Luke 15, when someone who has been lost has been found. There is a celebration par excellence when this happens, when people come home. It's necessary. Look at verse 32. But we had to be merry, the Father said. We had to. All this mine's yours, My son, he says to the elder brother, we had to be merry and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. I'd like to close with a few questions for you. The first question is, how do you see yourself? A slave or a child of God? Which one? Slave or son? Do you see yourself as a victim of injustice at the hands of God? Do you judge those who haven't lived up to your standard? Are younger brothers more attracted to you or are elder brothers more attracted to you? Do you desire recognition instead of deferring honor to God? Well, the good news for us is that the third Son, the Son of God, makes it possible 
for us to know God and to be a part of His kingdom, to be servants and children of God, and to be used by God to bring honor and glory to Himself. May God grant that you and I are men and women who come to Jesus Christ and trust Him completely with our lives. Would you bow your head, please? If you're here today and you're a prodigal, in your heart you've wandered away from the Lord, would you just admit that to the Lord and tell Him, Father, I have sinned against You in heaven and I'm coming home to You, Father. I don't deserve Your forgiveness, but I'm begging You for it. Thank You, Father. If you're an elder brother, it's a tough pill to swallow, but if you are, to say to the Father, Father, forgive me for my selfishness. I'm sorry, Father, that I have depended upon my own goodness and on religious works instead of upon Jesus and His work on the cross for me. Please forgive me, Father. I want to come in to the party. I want to be a part of Your family and kingdom as well. Lord, we do ask that You would help us to grow ever closer to You, to get to know You, and to grow in You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.